If you're just joining us, or maybe you jumped in last week and you hadn't considered where we've been in Matthew, let me just tell you why we're studying here. We choose books of the Bible, and we teach through them regularly, usually more like section by section, but we go through the verses of the Bible. We want to take what it has for us as it comes. And what we've seen so far, leading up to Matthew chapter 5, is the birth of Jesus, his announcement in the line of David. He came in order to rule on the throne of David, and Matthew has shown us how that happened. His miraculous conception and then his birth and the greeting with opposition. He had to run off, remember, into a faraway place because Herod sought to kill him. Jesus then was baptized publicly. The heavens opened. The Father said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descended. We saw the triune God stamping Jesus as divine. Jesus then went off into the wilderness. He endured temptations, and he pressed back against those temptations, living perfectly righteously. As we've come now to the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus' ministry has gotten going. He's more of an, uh, if you went in music terms, he's more of an established artist. He's had a few hit albums. He's selling out arenas. People have seen that he can, ver- he can heal various diseases and pains. And what happens at the beginning of chapter 5 is that Jesus makes a very intentional move to begin to teach. Perhaps pressed back from the crowds, maybe simply the pragmatics of his voice carrying more, much more likely because of the symbolic nature of a great teacher coming to speak the law of God from the side of a mountain. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5. We've gotten all the way through what up to this point has been Jesus basically speaking in the second person. You guys remember third grade? You got your grandma? Second person is you. So sometimes when you're teaching, you're talking, so, and you say you, this is outward facing. And all the way up through verse 16 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaching, he goes up on the side of the mountain, has been you. Blessed are you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs, this is all outward, right? Mostly second person, outward. There'll be a shift now. There's going to be a shift from verse 16 to 17. When Jesus begins to more fully step into the authoritative voice that he is claiming, this voice that says, I am greater than the lawgiver. I am greater than Moses. He's going to do something that, is ought, that has ought to only be done with great care, especially for those who speak for God. He's going to say, I say to you. I say to you. You've heard, or the law says. Now imagine what this would have been like for the hearers, especially those who were leaning in most suspiciously that this prophet was getting out over his skis a little bit. Maybe he's getting too much authority. The crowds are rushing to him. And then Jesus, instead of downplaying it, stands up on the side of the mountain as a great lawgiver, turns to the crowds and says, I know you've said concerning the law, but I say. My hope would be that next week, if I began to do that regularly, that you would slowly trickle out of the building. I know that Jesus said, but I say, if if that was the kind of thing that you were hearing regularly, you would all back away, hopefully not even slowly, but quickly. So what do we make of Jesus? As he transitions in verse 16 to verse 17, from mostly out there 
to now claim authority to himself to be able to speak. And what he's going to do in these four verses for us is set the tone for the rest, for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. From 517 to chapter 7, verse 12 are a unit of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read it together, and then we'll talk about how it helps us understand his teaching. I'd love for you to follow along. I know I'm the one with the microphone and the voice, but let's consider the text of the Bible together. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I would love to pray just for a moment. Let's pray together. Father, we're not impressive today, even our best efforts are fallen, we're fallible, so I pray that you would remind us by your spirit that we are not here to impress, we don't have merit to bring, we're not here to shake our fist at you and demand, but we have come humbly. And I ask that now as we've read these words that you would allow what is most true, most beneficial, most beautiful, most redeeming to be imprinted on our souls. Holy Spirit, would you move here? I have words and I'd love to be of benefit. We're going to spend time together, but in order for there to be lasting change, we need you, Spirit of God, to dial the degrees of glory, to make us more like Jesus, to show us paths of righteousness, and to give us hope. So God, I pray, especially for the distracted this morning, focus. I pray for the hurting this morning, comfort and healing. I pray for the hard-hearted this morning, for the cynical Those difficult places, I pray that you would break us in order to rebuild. So we give our time to you, our minds to you, our hearts to you. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to summarize the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot for us to consider. And I'm going to make the case that all of it needs to be read through a particular lens. So it's like watching the entirety of a movie without getting the 3D glasses when you walk in, if you have not understood verses 17 to 20. So there is a lens that Jesus is going to teach all of his teaching concerning the law, and I believe that these verses are it. And what we're going to need to consider are the things probably that you're excited about considering in this sermon. From verse 21 down through 712, 
Jesus is going to exegete. It's a fancy word for pulling out an interpretation of the law. He's going to exegete the law in at least six different ways. He's going to talk about murder and adultery and divorce and swearing oaths. He's going to talk about eye for an eye. In other words, retributive justice. He's going to talk about love of neighbor and hatred of enemies. And all of that needs to be through the lens of what he's describing in this introduction of 17 to 20. After that interpretation or the exegesis of the law, he's going to give us three examples of piety. Of What is the pious life? Jesus will teach us in chapter 6 how to give, how to pray, how to fast. And as we consider what he's going to tell us from those things, we should be thinking about the lens of 5, 17 to 20. Then he's going to apply the law to our lives. He's going to show us at least six areas of application. He's going to tell all those who are following him that in the kingdom, you should consider how to lay up treasures in the right spot. You should not be anxious about anything. He's going to talk about judgment. Should we judge or not? And how? He's going to teach us about asking so that it could be given. He will give the golden rule. And finally, where to build our lives. All of this practical information, all of this wonderful, pressing, inspiring speech toward giving and praying and fasting, all of our understanding of the intricacies of of adultery or divorce or murder or justice, they need to be seen through the right lens. And here Jesus gives us that lens. I'm going to organize it, the things to watch for, I'm going to organize it in this way. There are three great do nots in the text. So if there's a way to get at the right way to view things, the first way to do it is to say, avoid this. So there are three great do nots. You might say three nots in this text. And then in order to avoid these nots, there's one great consideration that is going to be given to us. And so I'm going to start with what is the most obvious and the first of the do-nots in the text. This is the lens that Jesus is giving us. He says, do not think. Now, I took a drink, a drink there intentionally because we probably should continue. There's many of you who are excited that he said, do not think. Finals are coming up. Uh, you don't like to read. You are the one who feels like more information is only growing sorrow. So, especially middle schoolers among us, do not think that what I said is, do not think, period. He's going to qualify the things not to think. Some of us do a good job enough already of just not thinking. So, we're going to qualify the kind of not thinking. He says, do not think, and then he says this phrase that is quite curious, I think. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Now, you would only say something like that if you had made the assumption that the opposite were not only possible, but happening, right? So let's say you're walking in a park somewhere and you see a beautiful fountain and it's bubbling water and it's great. And there above the fountain is a sign that says, do not snorkel. What do you assume concerning this do not? That some person who does not think did not, did not think that maybe this is a, a bad idea. Somehow they put on a snorkel and jumped into the, the fountain, right? Every do not is 
based on the assumption that someone probably is. And you can imagine this. Every policy in the known world, every regulation that's ever been done, comes on the back of some idiot doing something they shouldn't, right? That's just the way that it works. And oftentimes, the problem with something great is that the thing that is developed is great. You cannot possibly imagine all the ways that people will mess it up. And then in comes the policies. So Jesus is giving us a policy. He says, don't think this. It's built on the assumption that perhaps there were keen listeners, those who had been watching Jesus interact with the authorities of the day, those who had perhaps been watching Jesus even heal on a Sabbath. And they're concerned. They're concerned that perhaps this Jesus guy This new prophet that is gaining so much of a following. Maybe his allure. Maybe the thing people are attracted to is that he's just throwing off all restraint. And that he is coming in contrast to our great godly traditions. When Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. We should think about that as the totality of the teaching that has been given to God's people. Their entire understanding of who they are. It's not just the Ten Commandments. But it's the interpretation and the application of all of those commandments down through Deuteronomy, through the Kings and Chronicles, down through the great teachers of the law, all of the Torah. Not just the prophets proper, but the circumstances and the promises and the covenants with which they prophesied. And Jesus says, do not place me, this is going to be key, especially for those of us who are, who are on the other side of Christ, This is the warning, he says, do not place me in contrast with the law and the prophets. So don't make too much of a contrast between Old Testament and New Testament. I think that's what he's trying to say. Jesus says, don't think that I've come to to be in contrast or in competition with the God of your forefathers and with the laws that were handed down and with the prophets that warned, but instead I have come in continuity with them. So one of the first things when we consider law and righteousness, and that's what's being talked about here, is not to make a competition between Old Testament laws and rules and New Testament freedom Jesus or something. This is a temptation that I have known and considered my whole life. I remember one gentleman who was extremely well esteemed, a wonderful servant, just a beautiful man inside and out. He was industrious, served well. And I remember being appalled at one time when I heard from his mouth come this sentence. Well, I don't really make much of the Old Testament. I'm more of a New Testament person myself. I remember being very confused by this. And though that was an instance of of actually saying it, he verbalized something, I think that if I would have really thought through much of my experience in Christianity, this question was always there. How do we make sense of Jesus as it relates especially to the Old Testament? Perhaps you're new to Bible reading. Maybe you're just here at a church because you're trying to figure this thing out. You'll say to yourself, well, there is a stark difference between reading the Gospel of John and reading Leviticus. And sometimes I feel like I'm in a different world. 
And Jesus anticipates here and he says, now here's what may happen. You might be tempted to make too much of a contrast, to divide a wedge between the God of the Old Testament and all of his rules as though he's uptight and now cool, hip, new, freedom-loving Jesus who's so different than that. And Jesus tells us, don't think that. Don't press this too much. If I had to apply this to perhaps one of the most subtle temptations is that don't overdo, and I want you to hear this, overdo the relationship versus religion divide. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe it's been helpful to you. Perhaps you grew up in a circumstance where you thought, man, everything about church is so religious to me. Everything feels like a checklist. It feels like a performance. I was striving. I just needed to rest. And someone said to you, well, here, Christianity is not about a religion. It's about relationship with Jesus. Maybe you heard that and it helped you. I think we ought to be careful to not make too much of such statements. Perhaps what is meant by that is Christianity is a relationship with the living God. And so therefore religion must be living because everybody hates dead religion. Everybody hates dead orthodoxy, but we should be careful to realize that Jesus says, don't think that I came in contrast. Instead, he says, not one little, and then he uses a couple of phrases here that are essentially like we would say, dot your I's and cross your T's. These are Hebrew, likely punctuation marks. An iota in Greek is the, well, the smallest little marking or letter. And Jesus says that I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, this is an interesting phrase. If I had to give you one interpretive key for all of the book of Matthew so far, it would be simply to count up and to watch for the words fulfill. This is the first time that Jesus applies the idea of fulfillment to himself. When his birth was announced, it was done in a way that fulfilled the prophecies. When he was born and received in humble circumstances in Bethlehem, it was to fulfill the scriptures and prophecies. When opposition came into his life and he had to rush with his family off into the middle of a wilderness, both the opposition itself was in fulfillment to the scriptures and him growing up in Nazareth was to fulfill. He was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfillment, the idea that Jesus comes to enter into. If there is a great question mark or a great underlined blank in the notebook of all of history, Jesus comes to answer all of these things. He is the fulfillment. And here in Matthew 5, 17, he does not say, oh, all that fulfillment stuff you've read about so far in this book, it's a little overdone. But instead, he claims it for himself. And Jesus says, I am not in competition with or contrast with the law and the prophets, but in fact, I am their embodiment. The idea here is that not only did Jesus perfectly fulfill the law, how did he fulfill it? Well, he fulfilled it by performing all righteousness. There is a performative accent on Jesus' righteousness. It is active. He does fulfill the law, quite literally. You could never find him breaking commandments. But more than that, I believe what he means is essentially this. To fulfill in the sense of completion. To fulfill in the sense of to satisfy 
that all the law and the prophets were pressing toward and drawing a great portrait, a picture of a longing of the hearts of God's people. It had a telos in mind. The law and the prophets were going somewhere. Imagine a story full of major and minor characters, difficulties, struggles, tensions, foreshadowing, certain color and feelings. And it gets to the point where the story is so engrossing that you are invested in hoping that it ends in, what would you say, a fulfilling way. In other words, you can imagine in your mind's eye and from your heart, you can imagine a sense in which that great story of all things would be completed so that everything actually pointed somewhere. So that you watched or you read a book and you thought to yourself, I can't believe it. Every single loose end was tied up. Instead of maybe like a M. Night Shyamalan movie or a or poorly done. There's very few, but a, maybe a, who's the guy who did all the Batman movies? I forgot. A Christopher Nolan movie. You know, sometimes you watch Nolan and you're like, he didn't wrap up the loose end. What about the, how did the thing happen with the, the stars and the thing and then that. And don't even get me started on Tenet. Like they just don't, they're not fulfilling. They weren't pointing anywhere. You get to the end and you say, there's just arrows. And what Jesus is trying to say is that the whole story of God's people and the law and the prophets, everything when you see it in him is pointing to him as the fulfillment. He's the completion, the embodiment, the great end of all of God's work redemptively in the world. And Jesus says, don't think I'm in contrast. I am in great completion. I am in continuity with the Old Testament. Next, he says, do not relax. So don't think that I'm in contrast with. Therefore, do not relax. He says, it could be that you would say to yourselves then, okay, if you're the fulfillment of all the law, and follow my logic here, If Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law, we might say to ourselves something like this. Oh, well, that makes sense. Jesus was righteous. He's in continuity with the Old Testament, but he did that, so therefore we don't have to. And then worse than that, he says, don't relax and don't teach others to relax. This idea of relaxing the law is to loosen. Sometimes to the point of loosening to the point of the thing falling apart. It's It's a great coming undone of that which was given. And Jesus warns and he says, don't think not only that I'm in contrast with the Old Testament, but that you can therefore relax the law. He says, don't relax. And actually more than that, don't teach others to relax or loosen or break the law. This is a great temptation. Sometimes people are just mischievous and they stir things up just to instigate That's certainly in the heart of man. But there's other times when a great relaxing of God's laws comes as an outlet for the reality of guilt and shame or the desire for camaraderie in an inability. Have you heard the phrase, misery loves company? You heard that phrase before? I think that there is a corollary, and that is essentially something like this. Self-justification loves company. 
that a, an unsettled conscience loves company. I'm going to give you a very, very simple example. And I think we're going to see how, it, how does it come to be that people would relax the law of God and teach others. One time in a math class in school, there was a difficult assignment. One that was going to take great care and a quite a bit of effort. And the first student came into the classroom and they were generally very conscientious. And they were upset and felt a little bit bad because they were unable to complete the assignment. So before the class starts, they rush in and they go to their teacher and they say, I'm really sorry. I didn't have enough time. Uh, I didn't know it was due. And I didn't get this assignment done. The teacher looks at them and with a little bit of dissatisfaction, a little bit of sadness, and says, well, I'm really sorry, but it was due today. And now just at that moment, another kid comes into the classroom. And from the look on their face, the student knows that they are also concerned. There's consternation. And what's interesting is it happens is that as that student comes in and has consternation on their face, the heart of the student who has not fulfilled the, the duty actually begins to lighten. Now there's hope. Someone else also may not have done this. So they step back with hope and bright eyes, and the student comes in and says to the teacher, I'm really sorry. I didn't do this assignment. I didn't know it was due. It was a lot to do. It was confusing. I just didn't get there. And then the person next to him shaking their head says, yeah, it was. Yeah. Student three comes in. Teacher, I'm so sorry. I didn't get this done. Student five comes in. Student nine comes in. Everybody comes in and has not done this assignment. At this point, there is a tidal wave of self-justification. There is a relaxing and a joy in others having relaxed, and there is a pressure on the teacher, right? Now, I tell this in story form, but I want you to know that I did not actually witness any of what I just told you up to the first nine or so students in the classroom. But it is, in fact, a true story because I was the... I was the finger to the nose of the glasses, teacher's pet kind of kid who came in unbeknownst to me, that the tidal wave of justification was going, pressuring the teacher, because no one could have possibly known this was due. And I walked in with my homework completed, totally calm and collectively, and handed it in, and said, here's the assignment. <laughs> so what do you think happened to me <laughs> with some of my best friends? You see, I've broken the, I've broken the chain because there was a temptation for self-justification to garner as much camaraderie as possible. But now that there has been a break in the chain, everyone gets mad at the standard, or more than that, me who is a standard keeper. Jesus says to them, you will be tempted because God's laws are high and lofty, His holiness, His goodness is beyond comprehension. I alone in the fulfillment of these things, you will be tempted to desire to relax or to pull back from or to create a picture of God that essentially says, He creates in the curve. He doesn't really care. It's going to be fine. It's no big deal. He'll cut corners. And Jesus says, do not relax. So we now have two great pictures. How do we make sense of the law? 
God's commands, the Old Testament and the new in Jesus. Well, he says, here's two things to avoid first and foremost. First, do not think I came to abolish. And second, do not think that, you, that holiness is now optional. And certainly don't teach others to do that too. And finally, he gives one more great do not. And I believe that of all the do nots, this would have been the showstopper. This would have been the greatest gasp coming from the crowd. Because Jesus says, here's what you do. Do not follow the path of the scribes and Pharisees. And the whole crowd says, oh no, he didn't. I'm not sure what this would be called today. I tried to be hip in the first service and say, it was like, it would have been seen as like a hot take or like the scalding hottest of takes. And then someone was like, hot take isn't really a thing anymore. (laughs) So, I mean, who can keep up with culture? I don't know. But perhaps you can remember a time when you said something that just completely stopped the conversation. It was so counterintuitive. It was such an unpopular opinion. It was such a terrible thing to say that you just thought, oh, now this is offensive. Now you done crossed the line. I remember one time in a conversation about movies. I stated, first of all, that I had not seen all of the Star Wars movies until I was in my late 20s. And that already got some side eyes from everyone. They thought maybe I was, I don't know, kept in a box or an alien or something. But then worse yet, I doubled down later by saying, can I say something? I think Star Wars is kind of bad. Just its storytelling is bad. Its acting is bad. It doesn't seem very well thought out. And you would have thought that I had just, just absolutely murdered someone in front of all of the friends. I stopped the conversation and the room. Now I know, and I'm asking for some mercy, somehow I avoided, and because I loved sports or being outside or something, I avoided them when I was a kid and seemed like something only my brother did. And so maybe Star Wars, I just didn't get the nostalgia of it because I didn't watch it when I was a boy and I didn't have the toys and I wasn't like all in it. So maybe I just, I don't know. So please, some grace. And I know you still don't care. It's just over between us. But that was a moment that I remember stopping the room. I think Jesus stopped the room Because what he's just done is in a discussion concerning the law, remember he's saying, I say to you, in a discussion concerning the law, he just named the most righteous of anyone around. If you would have said who's righteous, they would have said scribes and Pharisees. And there is some benefit to external righteousness, to doing the right thing on its face. There's a little bit of an Ecclesiastes flavor to this. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, look, if you have money or if you have no money, you're just going to die. That, that's not kind of an idea of what Ecclesiastes is like. But he says, I guess on, on average, it's still better to work hard and get some stuff. He says, you know, there are people who don't learn anything and have no knowledge. And then there's a whole bunch of people who get a bunch of knowledge. They're both super sorrowful and sad, and it's just misery. Like you get the idea of Ecclesiastes now? But then he does say, I guess, though, it's still better to learn some stuff. 
It's almost as though Jesus says to the very most righteous of the people who are in their midst, I mean, I guess maybe it's better. I mean, some of you guys memorized all the commands and the laws and you're experts in these things and externally it seems like you're fine. I mean, I guess if you had to pick. But then when he does something that absolutely fundamentally shifts the perspective of those who desired to be righteous. The scribes and the Pharisees had lived their whole lives. In fact, an entire system was built on the idea that the scribes and the Pharisees were the absolute top. And they were accustomed their whole lives to looking down. In order to look down at you or me or regular folks, they had to look down through the bar of righteousness, through the entry gate of heaven, and ask people to come up to their level. And here Jesus does something so profound. He says, let me tell you where the bar of righteousness is in the entry door to heaven. You see, okay, you see the scribes and Pharisees right there? Look up. It's up there. And he has just consigned the best of human efforts to below the bar of standard entry. It's like a test where you can't pass it if you don't put your name at the top. And he says, "Uh, nobody put their name at the top. You don't even get to start in the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds and goes beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. Now again, he uses them as an example for a reason because they would have been seen as the people who were trying the hardest, who had gone the furthest with human external effort for righteousness. But he says, here's the thing. They are still below the bar of standard acceptance. God's righteousness in his kingdom, the thing that I've come to build, the fulfilling, completion, satisfying role that I have with the law, Jesus says, is so far beyond that the scribes and the Pharisees can't even see it. What this lesson for us might be, something like this. In the same way that misery loves company and self-justification loves company, I would say that there's a corollary that says something like this, but righteousness loves an audience. The things that we do right or well love to be on show. And Jesus is going to show this in Matthew chapter 6. Don't pray like, you know, them. Don't fast like that. Righteousness loves a show. And so we ought to be careful to not be like the scribes and Pharisees whose external obedience has some value, but is overemphasized to the point of being external only. The scribes and Pharisees were hypocritical. The scribes and Pharisees were self-serving and loved the applause and the glory of men. And Jesus says, don't do that. So the great do-nots concerning law and Christianity, concerning Jesus and our understanding of the Old Testament, don't drive too much of a wedge between, don't relax and think that holiness doesn't matter anymore because Jesus came. And don't be so overly spiritual as to put it all on your sleeve and live an external life of obedience only. And I believe that that's left us in a peculiar spot. So we can't get rid of the law and the prophets altogether. That won't do. Jesus didn't undo them. We can't relax them, change God's standards of righteousness in any way, and certainly don't want to teach others to do that same thing. 
And the flip side, we can't be so overly expert and externally following the law because that would not get us into heaven. So the question becomes, what does one do? I believe that what is happening here is that Jesus is using the law in the greatest way that the law has ever been given to use, and that is to show us that we will never measure up. That we have inbuilt into us a standard of morality, a standard of right and wrong that simply cannot be met. That any way that we seek to circumnavigate or to shift or to negotiate righteousness, well, what if we made a contrast and did away with it? Or what if we just relaxed it here or just there? Or what if we really did a good job and put it on a show? That none of these things will get it done. And that ought to leave the keen listener, one who has been taught by a kind of holy curiosity to say, I desire God, how do I get him to look to Jesus and open ears, to lean in a little further and say, well, what are we supposed to do? And eventually to learn that as Jesus says, that all things concerning righteousness, all that is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven is found in him. The Apostle Paul is later going to say in, 1 Corinthians, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that is why through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of righteousness. All the promises of getting things done well. Yes in Jesus. So the great consideration the thing that we ought to do. The thing left for us is to desire from God something that cannot be done by ourselves. In order for us to meet this standard of righteousness, we need to be given a righteousness. In order to see properly with the lens, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to consider that what God has always desired is not external conformity, Though we may end up in external conformity, there will be no disobedience in heaven. He does not, let's say it this way, desire chiefly or only or mere external conformity. But God desires obedience from the heart. And this has always been the case. I'm going to show a few areas of continuity with the Old Testament. We need to consider that this joyful obedience... This living from the inside out is what God has always desired for those who would be righteous. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. This has been a book that has been studied by a number of you this spring. The book says directly, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What is the emphasis of this verse? Well, Old Testament God says, remember, it's your heart, your seat of love, your affections, your desire that I'm after. Not merely sacrifice, especially if sacrifice is being done to mask what's going on in the heart. I want the knowledge of me. I want relationship with me rather than mere burnt offerings. When Jesus teaches concerning righteousness, he's bringing them back to this very promise of God that those who would live righteously would live inside out, not outside in. Jesus, his Sermon on the Mount is a message for those who are sick of striving, who are tired of stapling 
paper fruit to dead trees in order to try to pile up a kind of show of righteousness. Those who long to want to not only do the right thing, but to want to do the right thing. Have you ever confessed something like this? God, I want to want you. You ever worried about your praying and maybe you decided you need to start somewhere instead of just saying, help me to pray more. You just realize, wait, I don't want to pray. God, would you help me to want to pray more? You ever unpacked your anger, your competitiveness, your envy, your escaping into other worlds or other people or substances or pursuits of performance and money? You ever boil it down and ask yourself, well, what am I wanting here? Jesus is bringing all of those who would listen to him back to this lens What does my external conformity, what are the things that are coming out of me show about what's in here? And if you've sat with your fallenness long enough, if you've been honest about your sin even a few times and pondered it, you realize that these things start in the heart. And what Jesus is offering to those who follow him is a remaking of the heart. He's going to say in John chapter 3 that to see the kingdom of heaven, you need to be born again, a brand new life. This has been the promise of God down through the ages. I'm going to start with Ezekiel chapter 36. This one's the less famous of passages that are very similar. Ezekiel 36 verse 27 This is the promise of God that in the coming days when fulfillment and completion comes, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Note that the walking in his statutes and the care to obey rules is not the beginning of righteousness, but it is the end of a new spirit of life that bubbles up from within us. The hope of righteousness, according to Jesus and according to Ezekiel, is not better performance first, but a renewed heart. Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, this is the great promise for God's people. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What does it mean for God to be our God? What does it mean to be his people? What does it mean to be the righteous ones? Well, it means that the law of God has been written within us from our hearts. John Stott once said in commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, that what the scribes and the Pharisees needed upon hearing this command from Jesus, if the bar of entry to the kingdom of heaven is here, the Pharisees and the scribes may have been tempted to say, We need to pile up more. We need to add on top of what we've done. And Stott says that what they needed to hear was not a greater width of obedience or a greater piling of obedience, but instead a deeper obedience than they had yet experienced. A kind of obedience that bubbles from the heart. I don't know about you, 
But I read passages like this, and I wonder how often I have sought to save face or I have desired self-justification to feel better by not turning to the source of my affections in my heart, not placing myself before God in honesty, but instead saying, I'll just do one more righteous thing. There is great danger. I can say this somewhat uniquely, I think. There is great danger in being a professional Christian. And so perhaps it could be of help to you, but the questions that I ask myself this week when I think of a passage like this, I think about things like this. Do I love others well because that's what a professional Christian should do? Or because I've been moved in my heart to desire what is good and best for others and not myself? Questions like this. Do I want to be generous with others Because I hope that God rewards me with more and more. Or that other people see what I've given and think that I'm nice. Or because I've been moved in my heart knowing that I've received more than I deserve. And I want to give out of gratitude. It's a terrifying thing to have all the trappings of righteousness, all the external marks, but do not have a heart that beats after fellowship with God. And the scribes and Pharisees were living that life. I'm tempted in these ways. I want to be seen as right and doing it right, and I'm sure that you are at times as well. So in some ways today, what I'm asking you to do is to consider Jesus. To consider his teaching on the law. That our love and our activities and our holiness ought to start from within. I'm asking you to consider Jesus, who he himself is the fulfillment of this kind of living. And I'm asking you to consider the spirit of Jesus, which has been poured out on all those who would repent of their sins. So that the law of God will be put within us, written on our hearts. If we grow in external righteousness, if we have only an external better reputation, if we do the longest list, the biggest check mark ever of all of the best churchy things in the world, if we're the churchiest bunch of church folks that ever churched, but we have a cold heart toward God, if we have no experience of Him, if we don't long for righteousness because of a new spirit that's been put within us, then we are dead. So as we read concerning anger, murder and lust, retaliation and justice and oaths, as we consider our giving and our fasting and our praying. And as we look at the anxiety that riddles our lives and seeking of the kingdom, let's look at it through the lens of our hearts. Have you been made new fundamentally in soul and spirit by the finished work of Jesus? If not, righteousness starts there.